Welcome to the Inrooted Podcast, where we believe it's our biblical duty to work the land and that scripture provides wisdom for our everyday walk in life. This is your podcast where faith intertwines inspiration, new perspectives, and practical tips for your forest management and land ownership journey. Let's get started. All right, welcome to another episode. And it's pretty much the end of February, and we're going to be going into March, and I have a lot of great things planned for us. But today, What I wanted to share with you is that the proof that we are supposed to actively and intentionally manage our forest lands. All right, so before we go into where is this proof, what is this proof that I actually have to do anything? Let's talk about what happens if you don't. What happens if you don't actually do anything to your land? What happens if you just let it be natural in nature and let nature do what nature is going to do because things are going to continue to grow, right? And you would think that nature knows best, right? Well, what actually happens? I think a lot of old 90s films, especially at least from my childhood and a lot of other Hollywood medias has really kind of painted this picture of how human interaction with the land can be absolutely devastating and destroy the environment. And in some cases, that's true. In some areas with irresponsible stewardship and irresponsible management with no foresight for the future, that is true. But what I'm thinking about is that a lot of these movies have kind of glorified that any interaction is devastating to the land. And I'm specifically thinking of Fern Gully. I remember watching Fern Gully when I was a kid and I was just like, oh my goodness, cutting trees is the worst thing you can do. Now, I also respect that Fern Gully is more or less set up in the Amazon and that's a completely different creature and animal altogether in itself. And because of that, I'm not going to be referencing or telling you how to manage the Amazon. I think that's a very unique place that needs its unique intentional protection and conservation practices, all right? But when it comes to the U.S. Southeast specifically and our family lands, we can't take those misinformations and those assumptions that we learned and kind of were, uh, you know, integrated with from movies like Ferngoli or even the Lorax that don't even reference either real forests or forests that are very unique in their own ecosystems down there, far away with completely different government regulations and, and whatnot. We can't take the, the uh, theme of the story and say that means that we are supposed to treat our own forest lands the same because they're not the same. They're completely different animals in this case. So what happens if we don't intentionally manage our lands? What happens if we let nature be nature? What happens if we just completely, what I'm going to say is neglect. You may not be looking at as neglect right now because you've been so busy with everything else, especially if you are inheriting your land due to uh, death or other medical conditions. You're dealing with a lot of emotions. You're dealing with grief. You're dealing with anxiousness and overwhelm. You're trying to figure out this whole unique industry that has a ton of jargon on its own and land because of that assumption that nature knows best and things that are natural will be better off and it'll be fine. I don't have to worry about it. There's no immediate day-to-day priorities. It's so easy to place it on the back burner and eventually even forget about it. So what happens if we do that? What happens if we don't manage our lands? Well, the number one thing I'm going to be pointing out is that you are likely to have an increase in significant wildfires. Now, notice how I said significant wildfires. And now even managed lands are going to have wildfires. You're going to have fire. Lightning happens. Mean people happen. There will be fire on your land at some point or another that you don't actually want to be there. That is not intentional. But when you don't manage it, 
and you allow nature to go nature and it gets very crowded and it gets very dense. When that lightning strikes that tree, it greatly increases the likelihood that that fire is just going to, you know, cause a little bit of say damage for lack of better words. It's going to burn up a little bit of things to changing it to be a significant loss, a significant impact. That little fire that might have slowly burned around is now going to kind of like adding gasoline to it and it's going to ignite and potentially take off depending on the weather conditions. Forests that are unmanaged are more or less known to have significantly greater catastrophic wildfires. Now, I am going to put a little bit of a disclaimer there because there are some circumstances that no matter how great you manage, may be impossible to avoid. Weather conditions and the years of drought that are compounded upon each other do play a huge factor. But as a general rule of thumb, for your average everyday wildfire, which there are hundreds more than you probably even realize that are happening all around you, it's going to change from just a wildfire nuisance that's easily to take out, potentially even burning itself out, to being a catastrophic, significant event that could greatly damage what you have on there now, as well as for the future, potentially. The other negative impact that you are going to notice, but not immediately, is that there's going to be an increase in invasives. Now, I say this word invasives as if you automatically know what I'm going to be talking about, because you may not necessarily recognize that some of these plant invasives and even other wildlife invasives are not meant to be there. You may not recognize the, the catastrophic negative impact these things can have. And so the best thing I can relate to you that most people kind of do correlate to like, hey, that is a bad thing is kutsu. Most people in the Southeast, and so I'm going to assume that you understand what kutsu look like when you drive by a power line or even, you know, some of those roadsides, especially down major highways, you see these big green ivy vines that are just connecting from the floor all the way to the top, kind of like a big mass green mat. That is an invasive. It wasn't meant to be here. It was brought over for soil erosion control and it did a little too good of a job that now we can't hardly control it at all. So what happens when an invasive takes over? A lot of times it will outcompete what is native, what is meant to be here. And it means it's essentially creating this monoculture that nothing else can survive in. It's um, potentially putting blankets so you can't have any other grasses. You can't have any other pollinator habitat. And I also recognize right now my voice is getting a little hoarse. And I was at a um, business competition game show for the last week where there was a lot of talking. So this week, my, 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 my podcast voice is getting a little hoarse. And yes, I will share more about that competition that I was in and give you all the details as soon as it's about to get released. Um, but until then, I cut off topic. So the invasives, is, you know, it can completely detriment the, the quality and diversity of habitat, the quality and diversity of different vegetation you have out there that our animals rely on. Now, I'm talking in terms of plants here, but the same is also true with animals. If you get invasive animals, they can detriment what you have out there. They can ruin your vegetation quality that you have. They can outcompete other animals and really kind of create this monoculture monopoly effect. But it's a monopoly effect that we don't actually like and is going to have worse and worse consequences if left unchecked. 
Now, that really ties in with the decrease of diversity habitat, the decrease of the amount of ecosystem, of ecology, diversity, animal diversity, vegetation diversity that you're going to have out there. Now, having a decrease in diversity does not necessarily mean everything's invasive, okay? You can have completely shaded out. So, for example, of my 40 acres, before we started doing some of our timber harvesting, there were a lot of trees out there. And you may have been like, oh, that's a nice forest. But if you actually started paying attention, most of the trees were really similar. There wasn't a lot of diversity in tree species, but more importantly, that understory, the trees were so crowded. It was so shaded in that there was hardly anything growing on the bottom. There were no grasses. There were no, you know, uh, different herbaceous pollinators. We had a lot of saw palmettos in one areas and you know, that's a different, that's a, that's an animal for a different story, a lecture for a different time. But there just wasn't a lot of anything. And because of that loss of diversity out there, we didn't see a lot of different wildlife specifically. When you go out to a forest, you expect and really enjoy seeing the different animals out there. You enjoy seeing animals thrive. But when you have a decrease of habitat, a decrease of vegetation, especially in the understory because the trees are too crowded in, they're shaded in, no sunlight can now hit the forest floor you are seeing a loss in diversity and your animals aren't going to be able to thrive there. Now, I also mean a loss of diversity across the landscape because you may be thinking, well, Daniel, pine plantations are a monoculture. You know, how is that diverse? Okay, well, let's take our eyes up to the 30,000 foot view. If you are looking at directly between the trees, you may say that's a loss of diversity. Why would I even plant pine plantations? But if you look at it at that Tetris jigsaw puzzle, if each of the little pieces represent a different age class, a different stage in succession, where now you have uh, different habitat types, you have your early succession, which is when you have your young pines or a fresh clear cut and animals like that, certain animals thrive in that setting. Then you jump over to the mid-succession where it is very, very shaded and crowded because your trees are slowly growing up before you thinned. And that's going to create a different uh, matrix of habitat requirements that different animals or maybe in different seasons, those animals are going to like. And you jump up to that mature forest before you do your final timber harvesting. And again, a different matrix of ecosystem environmental principles, different plants are going to be out there, different structures. And what's important is to have all these different structures going more or less at the same time. Now, if you're a small landowner like me with 50 acres or less, you don't have a lot of opportunity to diversify within your own stand operationally. It's just not really feasible or efficient, and it's going to cost you more to do that. But if you recognize that it's you manage your way, and then Joe down the road manages that at the same time, and then Mary and Susie and, and Joseph over there, if we're all doing it, that's when you create that matrix Tetra style effect, and it's going to have a greater good than if we all at the same time decided to not do anything at all. The last part, which you may kind of roll your eyes at, is the decrease in revenue. And be like, oh, Danielle, it's not about the money, but it is about the money, okay? To some degree, it is always about the money. Because if you cannot get revenue, and if you cannot get money from your land, your land changes from its opportunity to be an asset to being looked at as a liability, because what is the common factor we all have, no matter where we live? Property taxes. We all have our annual property taxes. Now, I can teach you, and I do teach you in various forms, how to reduce that obligation, but it doesn't eliminate that obligation. So how are you going to support your property taxes 
if you aren't getting any revenue from the land. On top of that, if you decide to do any other enhancements out there, it costs money. Management costs money. Operations cost money. As much as I would like to say, well, we're all here for the greater good, to do what's best for the environment, it costs money. Gas costs money to get those equipments there. People's time and expertise costs money. So when you don't manage and you reduce the amount of profit and the quality of your force, that reduces the amount of perhaps lump sum. If you're someone that has historically just clear cut every 30 years, 35 years, not an uncommon practice for a lot of families who don't manage their land. They just hit that 30, 35 year mark. That's what daddy did. That's what granddaddy did. And you just cut and let it go back naturally because it's quote unquote free money. You are losing in so much potential of what that could really do. Not only of what you could do with that revenue source for the land back to the land, but how that could change your own personal and family life. That generational wealth that you can literally grow out there can change and impact your family for generations more when managed and steward appropriately. So those are just some of the the negative sides of if we let nature do nature, if we do nothing, this is potentially what could happen and usually is likely to happen. I'm not saying everyone that doesn't manage is going to have a catastrophic wildfire, but you increase your risk to it. I'm not saying that everyone that doesn't manage is going to have and be full of invasives, but you increase your risk for it. I'm not saying you're going to have a a dramatic decrease in diversity. Actually, no, I am saying that one. You will have a decrease in diversity if you do not manage. I can almost promise you that. And I can promise you, you will have a decrease in the potential revenue source that you could get compared to if you manage that property appropriately. Now, I said I was going to give you proof that we are meant to steward. Now, we both know I've recently changed a lot of branding. And what that means is that everything that I am teaching has a foundation in scripture. I am blending faith and land stewardship together. That scripture is going to have the foundation of all of my decision makings in all areas of my life. Is it going to tell me those scientific, you know, uh, recommendations for my land? No, but it does show me the proof of the importance of intentionally managing it. And to share that proof with you, I'm going to be sharing uh, two verses specifically, and then I'm going to be referencing very generally some other sections, all right? The very first scripture verse I'm going to reference that point blank tells me we are meant to manage the land is Genesis 2.15. And I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture for you in case you've never heard me quote it before and you are unfamiliar with Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, again, if you're not familiar with the story of Genesis of what happens next, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. And essentially, Adam and Eve disobey God and they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And when he gets banishes, he gets this command again. And we're going to be jumping over to Genesis 4.23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So we have two cases here where Adam is very specifically instructed to work the land. The very first one is to work the Garden of Eden, and the second one, he's banished to work the ground. Now, that seems like a punishment, but when you look at it in relation to 2.15, that he was meant to work the Garden of Eden, the most perfect utopian paradise to have ever existed. And if Adam was meant to work that, why would we expect any less 
to work an imperfect land. I mean, it says he was banished to work the ground. And that essentially means that now the work that he's going to have to do is going to be so much harder. It's going to be more difficult in comparison to work the Garden of Eden. That doesn't mean that when he was in Eden, he wasn't meant to do anything. He was supposed to kick his feet back up and just enjoy utopia. No, he was meant to work the Garden of Eden. It would have been easier because it was a perfect paradise. But that doesn't mean he was just meant to let it go because, you know, who would have known of those devastating effects? And therefore, he's kicked out to work the ground from which he came. Adam was meant to work the Garden of Eden. We are meant to work our imperfect land. For me, it doesn't get any more point blank slap you in the face than that. But I said I had two scripture verses. So we're going to be jumping over to Ecclesiastes, which we know is just a jumble (laughs) book of just full of joy. Um, And I say that sarcastically if you did not catch that, because I expected Ecclesiastes to be a little bit more uplifting than when I read it. Now, don't get me wrong. It is uplifting at the end, but it was a lot more uh, difficult than I expected it to go through. But in Ecclesiastes 3, it really resonates with me. And it resonates a lot with my land ownership decisions. And you probably have heard these verses before if you've ever been to a, a wake or a celebration of life or a funeral. And again, Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. Now, the rest of the verses all the way through eight talk about the different seasons that we go through for grief and happiness and dance and joy and and to sell and to give up and to, to persevere. But in two, it talks about a time to plant and a time to uproot. And when it comes to timber management, that is just, again, a slap in the face of planting, harvest, harvest, followed up by planting to repeat, rinse and wash. It's just a season of life. And I say this because when it comes to harvesting, that's a lot of times when most folks have the most difficult time to actually pull the trigger because it is emotional and we think we are doing something destructive, but it's not destructive. It's a season that we just have to go through to be the best stewards of that land as possible. Now, where other places could I possibly get referencing for the intentionality that we are supposed to manage our lands? Proverbs is full of various verses throughout all 31 chapters about the intentional management, about getting our work outdoors in order, about what happens when we're lazy. There is time and time again, wisdom for, again, all areas of our life, but wisdom that speaks out to me about the intentional working of our grounds, the intentional management of the land that we have been given the responsibility to steward. And speaking of that, then we jump over to one of my favorite parables to reference is the parable of the talents. You can just Google that if you're unfamiliar with it. But what it shares to me is the importance of managing our resources. The parable of talents talks about bags of gold or talents, depending on which scripture uh, translation you may be reading or which part of the book you're reading it in. But it has the same theme, the importance of managing our resources. And for us, our resources is our land, is our forest. It is everything out there. We are meant to manage it. Those who took hold and took the reins to grow their resources were considered faithful. The one who buried it out of fear and did absolutely nothing with it was considered wicked and lazy. Again, just pretty much slapping me in the face that working it, you know, with a genuine heart, recognizing that it is not ours, but we are to be stewards of these resources to grow it responsibly. 
is much better than just letting it be. Getting the same as, essentially, giving back the the landlord, who is what is referenced in the parable, giving him exactly what he handed that, that servant over years of time, considered him lazy. He didn't even try to do anything with it. So those are the, the four books, essentially, and four parts of the books. I know Proverbs, I, I, I just kind of skimmed through and I didn't give you specifics, but just because there are way too many to go through. But those are four different sections of the book, Old Testament as well as New, which just screamed to me the importance of intentionally managing your forests. Now, will our management systems look the same? No, they won't. We have different timber types. We're in different areas. We're in different locations. We have different goals, but that doesn't take away the importance of managing it for those different goals. So you may be doing, you know, one thing with your timberland to help you maximize aesthetics and conservation values that are near and dear to your heart. And I may be striving to maximize my profit return for my timber by maximizing the poles, the pole market. Neither is, neither one is better than the other. They're simply different. What's important is that intentionality that we take in both of those systems, because they're both going to have kind of a a domino effect of benefits to all other areas. But if we chose to be hands off, it is not going to benefit anything at any time. So it's the end of February, I had already said, and maybe you're listening to this in March, but in March, it is Women's History Month, which you probably already know because you're going to be slapped in the face with a ton of different advertisements, and I'm going to be doing a lot of women empowerment videos myself. Because essentially, that's what we are. I'm equipping and empowering women to manage their forest lands by removing the overwhelm from the decision making, by helping you ask the right questions to find the right resources to get the right results for your land, and maybe for the very first time. So because March is Women's History Month, I'm going to be showing up to share a lot of women's stories. I'm going to be taking examples of women's stories you know, you could probably guess biblical stories, especially of them showing up and taking action and how we can relate that to our own lives. So if you are really excited about March as much as I am, or if there was someone in your life that maybe has been on the fence of like, can I do this? I don't know if I can handle this. Tell them to definitely tune in in March. I promise you it's going to be powerful. It's going to be impactful. I've already got the outlines light up and I'm really excited to share those stories with you. So stay tuned for that. But what can you do today? Because I want to make sure each podcast, you have some type of action. Sometimes it will simply be a mind, um, a mind mindset shift that I want you to take away from it. And sometimes it's literal action that I want you to take away. But each episode, I want to make sure you're getting something valuable that you can start implementing in your life, especially in your land ownership decisions. So what is something that I think, or I don't think, I know you should start doing if you are someone that hasn't been managing your land? Well, the first thing I want you to do is decide today. Decide today that you are going to do something different. If you don't make that intentional decision, you're just going to push it on the back burner. All right. So I hope that after this podcast, I want you to take a post-it note and just write the word today, today. That's all you got to reference and put it somewhere that you can see and you can use this as inspiration for maybe whatever it is that you have been pushing to the back burner, but especially I want it to be in reference to your land ownership and management decisions. Now, the second thing that you can possibly do if you haven't already, if you've never done anything before is call your local county foresters and ask for a brief management plan. Now, a brief management plan usually means you have a very specific question that you're getting advice, but simply say that, you know, hey, I have this timberland. I want your advice on what the next step should be. 
That's something that you can do. It's usually free in most states that I'm aware of through the uh, state forestry agency. Now, each state's forestry agency is named a little different. In Georgia, it is the Georgia Forestry Commission. You can go up, call your local county Georgia Forestry Commission forester, sometimes called a management forester, sometimes called a county forester in other states. Call them and ask for a advice and recommendations of what you can do with your land. Now, there is a third thing and something new that I'm very, very excited to start offering out to you is that you can book a 15-minute call with me today or at your convenience at your schedule, and you can ask for a customized action plan. So I am now launching out some consultation services where I can listen to your story, kind of do my own aerial due diligence, and we can have our own coaching calls and consultations where I can give you very specific action steps. These podcasts are great, and I share a lot of rule of thumbs. But if you're wanting something very specifically for your situation and to kind of get some insight to maybe your land, uh, your land base, your land opportunities, book that 15 minute call with me. We're going to have that conversation. I want to hear your story and I'll be able to give you some very specific one to three steps that you can start implementing. So I hope I hear from you. I hope you've decided that today's the day. Grab that post-it note and starting next week, I can't wait to share all of these women empowering stories about women showing up, women that were thrusted into roles they never intended to take and how they are taking action and the impacts that they are leaving. Until next time.